Let's pray before we go to God's Word. Father, I thank you this morning that, that Jesus commissioned Peter to feed his sheep. I thank you that we're the beneficiaries of, of Peter's labor this morning. That as he fulfills his commission, we get to reap the rewards. Thank you for allowing us as rebel sinners to uh, be sheep, to be members of your flock as on the merits of Christ this morning. Father, by your Holy Spirit, help us focus our distracted minds, soften our hard hearts, straighten our crooked wills, curb the lusts of our corrupt flesh. Let us follow Jesus as we hear his voice this morning. May we with, with greater fervency anticipate his return. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. So a while back I wanted to memorize scripture, but I wasn't feeling it. So, so what do you do? You go and find a John Piper video to convict you where he like rips your head off and tells you that the devil is a lion and you have to protect yourself or he's going to shred you to bits. So that's what I did. And uh, it worked. So I decided to memorize 1 Peter chapter 1. And, and there's one verse that had more impact maybe than any other thing in, in my Christian walk, and that's verse 13 which is what we are going to look at this morning. And this verse I see is kind of a, it's a hinge pin, hinge pin between kind of the indicative, what is, and the imperative, what we're to do in First Peter. So here in this verse we see him shifting his themes. So as we read this morning, I want to read verses 3 through 13 once again. And uh, keep that in mind that as we get into verse 13, we're starting to shift from who we are and what our salvation is to who we are and how we are to be holy as God is holy. So let's stand as we read God's Word. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. This text reminds me of those game shows where you have the doors and you have to choose one door or the other. And, and in those game shows, the thing about it is you have to choose door one, door two, or door three. You can't kind of say, well, I'll just take them all. You know, I, I'm going to hedge my bets and I'm going to do all three of them. The same is true of our, our hope. We can really only place our hope, our ultimate hope, in one place, in one thing. If we choose one place to put our ultimate hope... Well, that excludes all others. If we choose door three, we can't have one and two also. I think this idea is what caused this verse to be so impactful uh, for me back when I first learned it. My final hope, ultimately, if it's in, in the grace that's going to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ, can't be in my bank account or my reputation or my relationships. It has to be all or nothing in that ultimate grace. And this changes, this changes everything, and it's, it's liberating for me. It may sound somewhat constricting, but it's actually quite liberating. Because it frees me from the bondage to the world to, to serve Christ. If my hope is in something else, say, you know, like the Jews, their hope is in their family heritage. Well, I'm a child of Abraham, so... You know, I'm going to be good. If that's where my hope is, then I'm in bondage to that identity for my whole life. For another example, if my hope is in, in my own reputation, kind of the legacy that I leave in the community, my freedom is, is going to be limited when it comes time to take a personal hit for the name of Christ. I'm not going to be willing to stand for truth if I'm not willing to be maligned or misrepresented. But if my hope, my final hope, rests exclusively in that grace that's coming when Jesus comes back, you know, who cares what people say about me? Who cares if I'm aligned or misrepresented? My hope is not in this life or in this world. So I hope you can see something of what I mean by this is a liberating idea. And I really I think it's true that, that what we hope in, what we hope for, is what we live for, ultimately. This is what Peter is getting at here in this passage. After explaining beautifully the salvation we have in Christ and who we are in Christ and the resultant inheritance that is ours in Christ, he now exhorts us to hope exclusively in that inheritance, in that grace that comes to us when Jesus comes back. So the way I see this text to kind of give you a framework is that there's one exhortation here. One exhortation to hope fully in the grace that is to be brought to you. And then there's two sort of guide rails, two words he uses that are means or, or the manner in which we carry that out. And so we're going to start with the exhortation first. He's, he begins, therefore, and then the exhortation, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, what we're dealing with here is, is a therefore, based on all that we have seen, 
about the glory of our salvation. Remember, our salvation is the most desirable possession in the cosmic history. Therefore, based on that and based on what's coming to us in our inheritance, hope fully. You can you can hope for things. We often talk about that. Well, I really hope I hope to, you know, take a nap this afternoon. But here he's talking about where do you place your hope? What do you put it in? It's kind of like the the stock market. You can kind of hope for the market to go up and down, but really when you start to get a personal uh, sense of the stake you have in it is when you invest in the stock market. What he's talking about here is putting all of our eggs in this one basket. That's why he uses this word fully. He doesn't say hope hope some, you know. It may come to you, but hope fully in this grace. The the great thing about this grace is that it's a certain hope. You know, when you go to the game show, you don't know what's behind door one, two, or three. Here we know. I mean it's a settled matter. Now let's look at what this fullness of hope kind of looks like. I see it in two ways. First, it excludes all other things. So we have to look at it negatively and then positively. So first, negatively, we hope fully to the exclusion of everything else. This here is a a command, hope fully. It's an exhortation. It's an imperative. But the real tragedy in life is not when people fail to obey the right rules. You must hope fully. The real tragedy is when they hope in an insufficient hope. Because the world and its goods fall short of being sufficient hopes. There are many things which we could consider, but I want to consider two things here. First is that it excludes personal prosperity. Setting hope fully in the grace to come excludes hoping in our personal prosperity. Christianity, we're called to a cross, not to success. Not that success is bad, but it's a poor substitute for an ultimate hope. Jesus says that our treasures are to be in heaven. He also says of himself, if you're going to follow me, you know, foxes have holes to lay their head in, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I think we sometimes, we often think, you know, if I can just have this one more thing, it could be a small thing, a, a new car, or whatever, if I could just have that, well, then I'll be content. And as we know, that is a lie. Our hopes cannot be in our possessions or our stuff, and neither should our pursuits follow those things. The second thing that this this idea excludes is kind of this whole idea of the restoration of the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a sermon on this verse and, and he titled it No Hope for This World. It's a provocative title. See, I think a lot of times we think, and we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, but that Christianity is all about transformation, Right? Life transformation, cultural transformation, world transformation and restoration. 
See, if our hope is in the idea that this world will be transformed into this lovely moral utopia where everybody loves everyone, we will be severely disappointed. It's not our job as the church to restore the world. I think sometimes if you ask somebody, do you, do you believe in Jesus? And they say, yeah, yeah, I had a real moment of life transformation. You know, I stopped smoking cigarettes. Stopped hooking up with people. Started eating right. Left my bad friends. A lot of people's idea of salvation is that they have somehow become morally transformed. The job of the church is not to redeem culture. Now again, it's not bad to make our, na- our neighborhoods beautiful. You plant trees. Or seek to have politicians in office who hold to Christian values. It's good. It's really good. It's important. But those things are really poor substitutes for an ultimate hope. So it's that idea of exclusion. Exclusion of all other things. When he says fully there, that's what impacted me so much through the years. Is that ultimately I have one hope. That Jesus comes back and I have grace. So what does this include? What does this grace include? Ed Clowney here. and Sorry, I always quote Clowney, but he's so good on First Peter. He's so practical. I look at several commentaries, some of them more technical. So I'll apologize now and continue to... And I'm not going to repent. <laughs> but he says... Hope is not so much an attitude to be cultivated as a reality to be recognized. To set our hope is to believe in the gospel. Our faith and hope are in God. We cannot first improve our skill in hoping and then direct our more hopeful attitude toward God. Hope moves the other way. It is our response to God's work. So what we can do with the promises that we have, with the grace that is coming to us, is rest. We can rest in complete confidence in a sufficient grace. It also, in the temporal sense, will change our identity here and now and will move us, as we'll see in coming weeks, to holiness and brotherly love. Now, it's not all future, but we, we have much now. First, we have an inheritance. The content of the inheritance is so great. We could spend hours on it. But just to name a few things of our inheritance, we have redemption. Eternal life lived in that city of God, illuminated by the glory of God. Salvation at the day of judgment. Praise, glory, and honor. Promised rest, peace. Paul says in 2 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. I want to consider a little bit the benefits of our salvation. And I want to do that through the shorter catechism. So, I don't... Is the shorter catechism in the hymn? Feel free to look that up. We're going to look at uh, questions 32, beginning in 32...
if anybody says or if the idea creeps into your head, well, my hope is completely in the grace that is to come. What what do I have for the now? Am I just stuck to, to moan and groan my whole life? This is what we have. These are the benefits of salvation here and now. Beginning in verse or question 32, it's asked, What benefits do they that are effectually called, or in the context maybe of 1 Peter, we might say, born again, what do they part, partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. Question 33, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. 35. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. And 36. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. When I left, my dad gave me some little thing. I forget even what it was. When I left for, from Thanksgiving, he said, Well, don't, don't let anybody say, I never gave you anything. <laughs> well, don't let anybody say, God never gave you anything. Some of these doctrines can be some come rote for us. Justification, adoption, and sanctification. These are the benefits that we have in Christ here and now. And they're glorious. After reading those question and answers, if we really believe them, I don't know what anybody could accuse us of, what the devil could accuse us of. But the abundance that we have both now and for the future is astonishing. Now, as I said, Peter gives this, this exhortation with, with two kind of guide rails two means or manners of by which we carry these this exhortation out. <clears throat> I think we need guide rails because we can kind of react to this this idea of fullness of hope in a future grace with either laziness, knowing that we're kind of set, or with kind of intemperate, licentious behavior. So first, hope with a sound head. He says, preparing your minds for action. We might say, hope by preparing your minds for action. It's not a relaxed, lazy anticipation. In fact, the word here literally is girding up the loins of your mind. 
See, in those days, of course, men would wear the gowns or whatever you call them. And what they'd have to do is grab the back end of it and pull it up and, and tuck it in their belt so it kind of make these baggy shorts. If you try to run down the track or the work or whatever, you're going to get caught up in these baggy garments. So that's the idea here, is we're to do that with our minds. We're to gird up the loins of our minds. Prepare your minds for action. We're to be ready for the Lord to arrive. This has this idea of preparation. Get ready. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. See, salvation is not arrival. Or, or that moment of regeneration is not arrival. We have a future event toward which we're looking and we have much activity to do in the meantime. So how do we prepare our minds for action? How do we gird up the loids of our mind? Consider Colossians 3. says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For if you have died and your life is hidden with the Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So often this, this bagginess of the mind is, is simply distraction by the world. And we need to exercise self-control over the activity of our minds. So I just ask you, what are the encumbrances that are upon your mind? What are the bagginesses that circle around your mind? Those distractions that cause us not to work well or to run well. Are we exercising self-control over our minds? Are we stewarding our thoughts so that they are efficient and unencumbered so that we can run well the race set before us? It says, Romans says, to do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the last point I want to make on this word here is that Christianity is a, is a mental affair. It's an, electric, an intellectual affair. This word here, mind, that he uses is, is called uh, the seat of perception and thinking. Or the inner, inner disposition of the mind. That's what we are to gird up. See, we're not called as Christians to go out and, and kill people. You know, you're not an unbelief. You're an unbeliever. I'm gonna. We're gonna. You're opposed to me. You're my enemy. So I'm gonna kill you. Rather, we are to, in our activity, engage them with a message. We're also not called to be bodybuilders, but we are called to be thinkers. We're called to grow in knowledge. So I think the mind is... Excuse me here. So often I think with, with talking about distraction, 
thing that sticks out to me most is, is my use, my, personally, of, of media. The thing that distracts me so often and, and captures my mind is media. We were talking about that the other day with, with Cohen, three-year-old little boy. He can get so engrossed in it, so caught up in it, and we all do it. So I want to just challenge us to, to not have lazy minds or baggy minds, but to be girding up the loins of our minds. Also, he says here to be sober. Being sober-minded, that's the second guide rail. Or hope temperately. Literally, the word means to be sober or to be temperate. Thayer's Dictionary says that in the New Testament, everywhere it is uh, a trope. It's a metaphor, this word. It's to be calm and collected in spirit, to be temperate, dispassionate, and circumspect. See, a call to, to fullness and, and of hope in an eschatological event is fertile, fertile ground for kind of the, the Kool-Aid drinking Looney Tunes of the world. You know, the, the people who sell everything and live in a mud hut people. The join our compound people. But here he calls us to be sober, be temperate, be calm, collected in spirit. There's not now, nor has there ever been a situation where being in a huff is in order. Keep your head on straight, is what he says. We can easily be intoxicated by the world. Clowney again says, Drunken stupor is the refuge of those who have no hope. But Christians who look for the coming of the Lord live in hope. They will not seek escape in the bottle, for they have tasted already the spirit of glory, alive and alert, the look to look for the Lord. And of course, he I think he may be applying this here to drunkenness with alcohol, which would certainly apply, but also any manner of drunkenness, such as media or other things. We can get caught up in the things of the world and they sort of numb our spiritual senses. There's an article a while back on the newer website that Whitehorse Inn puts out, Core Christianity. It says, Why You Should Stop Trying to Numb Your Pain. That's the title of it. And he says, I believe it's Adriel Sanchez, says, We all have different ways of masking our pain. Could be excessive alcohol consumption, binging every night on Netflix, pornography, shopping, or eating. The list goes on and on, but quite simply, band aids are those things which we use to escape our painful reality. They are the stuff that helps us not to feel. They are the things that say to us, Peace, peace, when deep down we're a mess. The worldly hopes are only band aids things which temporarily numb us to our pain, but also to spiritual realities. Read, continuing in verse Thessalonians from where I left off earlier, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So he calls us to be ready, ready for the appearing of the Lord, prepared for the appearing 
of our Lord. I want to conclude with a section of Scripture. I was trying to think about how to conclude, and I read this passage from Jesus, and I thought there's no better way than the words of our Lord and Savior to say what I'm trying to get at. So from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 16, Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Or consider the lilies, how they grow, neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and with no, where no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him, and at once he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. If he, gives, if he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Let us, in girding up the loins of our mind, preparing our minds for action, being sober in mind, hope fully in the grace that is to be brought to us on that day. Praise God. Thank you.